And uh, looks like they got quite a crowd going back there. Good luck, JJ. <laughs> So, one of the uh, privileges and responsibilities of a pastor is going to uh, hospitals when people are sick, and they tell you they're sick, or you, someone tells you they're sick, and they're not there on, on, the, on the down low, but because, uh, uh, you know, oftentimes people, when they're stuck in a hospital, sometimes you're sitting there waiting in a bed, and uh, it's one time people are actually happy to see their pastor come through, usually. Uh, but, but it's also a little bit of a challenge, because sometimes you're... you're meeting someone who you know is a firm believer who's going through something and, and they're just getting a minor procedure maybe, but they're going to be in the hospital for a few days, but it's not a lot of anxiety attached to it. But other times, you know, it's mean old Uncle Jack who's an avowed atheist, but he's got two weeks to live and, and they want the pastor to go talk to him. And so it's hard to, you, you just never know what you're going to find when you go to a hospital visit or how things are going to go. So as a result of that, over the years, I've developed a few go-to passages that I use when I'm going to a hospital visit that seem to apply in these circumstances. And one of them is the one I want to look at today. It's Psalm 103. For people who read the Bible, it's, uh, it's one of the favorites. It's a good one to think about and reflect on regardless of where you're coming from and regardless of how healthy you feel just at this moment. Psalm 103, just going to read the first couple verses of it. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is God's word for God's people this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that as we look at your word, as we think about this, you would help us to apply it to the challenges we face in our life, to the places where we're stuck, where we're struggling, and where we need your grace to come down. Bring that grace to us, we pray, through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, in our world these days, people talk a lot about the importance of words, how important the words that your parents say to you are, how important the words that your teachers say to you are, how important the words your friends and your siblings say to you can be, how destructive they can be, or how constructive and encouraging they can possibly be, and, and, uh, and how important the words that, that other people who you love and care about are. But I believe the most important words are not those particularly. What's ultimately important in your life and my life are the words that you say to yourself. What do the voices in your head say to you over and over again? And what we have in this passage is the psalmist, as he's writing, he's, he's reminding himself of what he knows to be true. He's reminding himself of who he is and of what God has done for him and trying to reorient his brain so that he can get his focus to whatever problems he's facing in the world. That's why he says, praise the Lord, O my soul, O my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He's reminding himself to praise God. He's reminding himself to remember 
what God has done for him. He's reminding himself who he is in the sight of God so that he can live in light of that. As some people are fond of saying, the first duty of a Christian is to preach the gospel to ourselves, to, to remember who we are, who God has made us, what God has promised us, and what God is doing for us so that we can, so that we can live in light of those truths. So, so I, I want to talk today about the importance of, of uh, positive self-talk because, uh, because that, that, that's, that ultimately is what's going to define you. You can get past what your parents said about you. You can get past what your friends say about you. You can get past what other people say to you so long as you're able to say the right thing to yourself because that's ultimately what's... Uh, what's uh, what's authoritative in your life. So three things he wants us to remember, or, or three broad categories here. The first one is he wants us to remember God's forgiveness and healing. Forgiveness is one of those basic Christian terms. We know the principle God forgives our sins. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's one of those terms that was that is actually a banking term, but then we apply it to sin, you know. As we, we say in the Lord's Prayer, God forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the image there is that we have a crushing financial debt that we can't handle and then the person to whom it's owed just uh, wipes that away, just cancels it and says we can, we can go and be freed from that debt. I remember once years ago I was, we were talking about forgiveness and the Christian concept of forgiveness and there was a banker at the table and he's like, oh yeah, that's nice that God does that, but I'll tell you what, about banks, it never happens. Banks don't ever forgive, forgive debts. And, uh, and that, that was interesting, but then I found an exception actually this past month you might have seen this in the news, but Chase Bank was unwinding their credit card business in the nation of Canada, and they had a bunch of outstanding loans still there in Canada, and they decided that rather than continue to hold those loans or to sell those loans, that they were just going to forgive those loans. The report went like this. When the company could have sold the loans to a third party, they said ultimately, we felt it was better decision for all parties, particularly our customers, to just forgive the debt. Paul Adamson of Ontario told the, the CBC that he called his bank when he saw that his account was closed last week because he didn't want to miss a payment. I'm honestly flabbergasted about this, he said. It's flabbergasting. You know, and I, I bet a lot of you are, are hearing that and you're like, gee, wouldn't it be great if my credit card company <laughs> forgave my loans or my mortgage company or my student loan company just uh, forgave my loans? And, you know, here's the interesting thing about that. You know, it's astounding to us that a financial institution might forgive loans, but we kind of take for granted that God forgives us, right? It's like God's just, that, that's what he's supposed to do. He's God. What, what, what problem is it to him to forgive our loans, but, but the heart of our faith, the heart of the Christian faith, the heart of what we celebrate as Christians is the idea that, not that we're perfect, but that we're forgiven. In fact, the Christian faith is only open to those who recognize that they're sinners, recognize that they're spiritually and morally bankrupt, and that God has come and has wiped away their sins. Only those who are bankrupt, only those who recognize they can't 
pay back their debt to God are invited into the Christian faith. And ultimately, what he says here, you know, he, he connects forgiveness to healing. And sometimes in life, you know, we, we want our problems fixed, we want our issues to go away, we want to be healed, but we don't want to deal with the root of the issue. And the Bible says that healing has its roots. Healing starts with the experience of forgiveness. Maybe some of you have been in recovery meetings, and one of the things that I think is productive in recovery meetings is when we say the Lord's Prayer together. And we say, you know, to people who are struggling with their addictions or struggling with their, their habits or hang-ups, you say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And you realize that there is hope for us because God is a forgiving God. And the key to healing, or the, the first step to healing, is experiencing God's forgiveness in our life. There's a story in Mark chapter 2, some of you might have heard before, where a guy who's paralyzed is brought by his friends to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus is moved when he sees this guy brought to, his, brought to him, and he, he looks at this guy, this paralyzed guy, and, and, and the first thing Jesus says is, Son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, Jesus is kind of missing the point. You know, we're not, we weren't really up for a moralizing talk right now. You know, we had, we had other things on our mind. And so Jesus knows what they're thinking, it says. And he, he looks up at those people and, and he says to them, which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And so the man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Because the Bible says that healing in our life begins with forgiveness. We can't get on with our life till we know that we're forgiven of our sins. We can't get on with our life till we're able to forgive those who have hurt us. That's why the Lord's Prayer reminds us to pray that way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, it's kind of like uh, somebody who's struggling with, with, a, with a, a serious disease that's debilitating them. Like imagine you have lung cancer, and the doctor says, well, you've got to have your cancer cured so that you can breathe again. And he said to the doctor, well, I don't really care about, about the cancer being cured. I just want to breathe again. But it's not until the cure takes place that you'll be able to breathe. And in the same way, it's not until we experience God's, God's healing, God's forgiveness in our life that we'll be able to begin to be restored in the other areas. Now, there's a reason why banks don't forgive bad debts. Why, why is it that banks don't forgive bad debts? Because that would be a bad business practice, right? Because those, those, debts, those debts that they hold are actually the assets that they hold, those payables, those, those receivables that they, they need to collect one day. And if they give that away, they won't be able to function as a bank. And, you know, you need to understand that for God to forgive, he couldn't just forgive. For him to forgive, he had to take the punishment on himself. And that's why Jesus came. That's what the cross means. What the cross shows us is that forgiveness is free to us, not because it's cheap, but because it's so expensive we couldn't pay for it. And so Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died an innocent death 
in our place so that we could be forgiven. What is Jesus paying for when he hangs on the cross? He's paying for your forgiveness and for mine. Hope for a hurting world, hope for a sick world, hope for our own sick hearts begins when we believe and comprehend that we have been forgiven. So he says he forgives all our sins, he heals all our diseases, and he says he redeems our life from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion. The promise he has is that God is going to come and redeem our lives from the pit. You know, lives have those ups and downs, and, and if you've lived long enough, you've had that roller coaster, you've had those, those high moments, and you've had those low moments. And then you go, go back up, and you know, when you get, get to a certain place, hold on, because we're going to be going down sometime soon. And that, that's how life is for most of us. But the problem is sometimes when we're down here, we feel like we're going to be down here forever. We feel like we're going to be stuck here for, forever. But, but the promise of Scripture is that he will redeem our life from the pit. When we find ourselves in the pit or in the pits or life is the pits, the hope and promise of those who are following God is God is, God is going to use even that pity experience to bring us up on the other side as we continue to trust in him. And that's what enables us to live with hope even when our circumstances seem completely unbearable. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You know, his, his, his story was made into a musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Maybe you saw that. But uh, anyways, the story of Joseph is he's, he's the favored son of his father, Jacob. And uh, because he's the favorite son, all of his brothers hate him. In fact, they hate him so much, they, they hate him so much that one day when they get the chance, they beat him up and then they sell him into slavery. Remember that? And, and that's a pretty low moment. You go from being your father's favorite son to being another slave at the uh, slave auction. And, uh, and so, but Joseph rolls with the punches there. He, he finds himself a slave in Egypt, but he works his way up and he he ends up being a butler in the home of a, of a very powerful, important man. So it's a pretty good job. He just gets to boss other people around. But then he gets accused of a crime, and he finds himself in prison again. So he's back in the pit. And you would think by this point, Joseph would give up. And it says he was in prison for 14 years. I mean, think about that, 14 years in the pit. But then God brings him out again. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt and, and essentially the most powerful uh, diplomat in the world because of the unique process God brings us through. And so the life of Joseph, the story of Joseph is, is inspirational to everybody who finds himself in the pit because it means that God works through these difficult circumstances we find ourselves in, even, even these hopeless circumstances and even these, these irredeemable circumstances to accomplish something that's greater than we could imagine. I like the way Psalm 139 puts it, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. You know, our life is not the story we get to write. It's a story that God is writing on our behalf. And if I was writing my own story, it would just, if I could write that story, I'd just go from kind of vacation to vacation to luxury event to, to, uh, to great success after another. But, but God wants our life to be more 
of an adventure and less of a travelogue. He's writing a story and he offers you the opportunity to be a hero in your story. Now, think about this. As, as you think about life, what, what do heroes and victims have in common? You know what they have in common? Bad things happen to them. And they're faced with various threats and they're faced with various difficulties and they're faced with, with bad people coming after them and they're hurt and they're injured in different ways. But the difference is, Remember, the victim is crushed by those events and gives up and has to surrender to those bad things. The hero conquers through those events and is able to overcome those bad things and become something greater and bigger because of the enemies he had, because of the attacks he endured, because of the difficulties he had to get through. And that's what makes him or her the hero of the story. And God is wants to write a story for your life where you're the hero of your story, where the bad things that happen, where the pits that you find yourselves in, where the dragons that attack you are just opportunities for you to discover a power that you didn't even know you had. And, and through that, he'll redeem your life from the pit and crown you with love and compassion. The promise and the assurance for the child of God that our lives are going to be redeemed from the pit comes from remembering our leader, remembering the hero of heroes, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, when Jesus, when Jesus was crucified, everybody said, well, he's the Messiah who failed. He's the Messiah who fell short. He's the Messiah who he was another pretender because there's no such thing as a crucified Messiah. There wasn't to the people, to the contemporaries in Jesus' day. All Messiahs, a, a, a true Messiah was going to be victorious. And then he was hung on the cross and he died and they buried him. And that is the deepest pit you can find yourself in. When you're dead and buried, it's like, well, that story is over. Time to find a new hero. But you know the story, three days later, he rose again from the dead. He, his life was redeemed from the pit, and that's the promise and the hope that you and I can have, that ultimately and eternally, our lives will be redeemed from the pits we find ourselves in. So for those of you who just today find yourself in the pit, look to the power of God and wait and trust for him and look for the way that he's going to slay the, help you slay the dragons that are attacking you and he's going to show you the way to fight your, fight your way out of the pit you find yourself in. So he forgives all our sins, he heals all of our diseases, he redeems our life from the pit, he crowns us with his love and compassion. And then it says he satisfies our desires with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. You know, I, I think sometimes when we, we're trying to get religious, we're trying to, to be good, we get afraid of the desires that God has given us. You know, religious folks are have a reputation for being afraid of our desires because, you know, we might might like food, but too much food, and, and we're going to become gluttons. We might like, like stuff, but too much stuff, and we're going to get greedy. We might like luxury and beauty, but if we get too obsessed by that, we'll get distracted from the things that really matter. We might long for intimacy and connection, but if we get, we can get off track from that as well. You know, all of the desires we have are things to be afraid of because we know how our desires can lead us astray.
But you've got to remember that God gave us these desires ultimately, originally because they would lead us to him. Our desires were meant to be satisfied by the good gifts that God gave us. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? God says, okay, you guys, this whole garden is yours. You can have anything you want except for that one tree. You can have anything you want. But, of course, the only thing they wanted was the one thing they couldn't have. If you're parents, you know how that, how that works usually. <laughs> but, uh, but God's intention in original creation was to give us desires, give us appetites, and then satisfy those desires with his gifts. And that's his intention even now. It's just that we're too discombobulated to experience that, to make it real for, for us. In Psalm 104, the psalmist puts it this way. God makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate. He brings forth food from the earth. He gives us wine that gladdens human hearts and oil to make our faces shine and bread that sustains our hearts. You know, all of the good things even now that we desire are, are meant to be gifts from God that we, should, that we should be able to enjoy. In fact, one way of putting of saying this is that the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, is the process of, of reorienting our desires so that we love what God wants us to love. We love things that will make us, not things that will wear us down and things that will uh, d destroy us. You know, another way to put this, G.K. Chesterton was an English writer about 100 years ago, and and he said, he put it this way, he said, the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is actually searching for God. He's saying even our most corrupt and debased instincts are actually, if we knew them, if we understood them, are actually a longing for God himself. And, and it's God himself who is at the heart of our desires and God himself who's going to satisfy our desires in another place. Psalm 73, the psalmist is talking about his frustration in life and how things are not going well. And then he says, I went and I prayed about this and I realized this. Whom have I in heaven but thee? The earth has nothing I desire apart from thee. And my flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And... As we go through life, all of our desires are frustrated. All of our desires tend to get warped because we're all warped and we're all frustrated in all kinds of different ways. So our desire for love tends to get frustrated. Our desire for, for food tends to get frustrated. Our desire for all the things that this world has to offer get, gets warped, gets frustrated in all kinds of different ways. But all of that and when that's frustrated, and when we realize the challenges we have and the problems we have as a result, it's an opportunity for the child of God, for someone who's pursuing God, to recognize that it's ultimately in God himself that our desires are going to be met. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It seems that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're just half-hearted creatures and we're fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're basically just like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday 
Let's see. We are far too easily pleased. To be human, to live in this world, is to live with frustrated desires. And the one who will satisfy those, the one who will relieve that frustration, is when we find in those desires a desire for God himself. So he, he satisfies our desires with good things so that our youth will be renewed like the eagles. The promise ultimately for all of us is that our youth will be renewed. Now our culture is obsessed with youth. You know, there's whole, whole sections of medical practice that are just devoted to making people look younger. And there's whole industries that, that create all kinds of chemicals that are just there for the purpose of making us look younger. And so, and you know, you look at pop culture, you look at the movies that, are com that come out, they're usually about the, it seems like all the movies that come out are about the drama of 17-year-olds, you know, trying to find their way through life as if there's no, n nothing else to talk about in this world. But, but you know, as much as it's, it's crazy that our culture is obsessed with youth, it's not just our culture. It's been the human condition forever. Some of you have heard of Ponce de Leon. He was the uh, Spanish explorer who went through Florida, tromped through Florida in the days before freeways and air conditioning. I can't imagine how miserable this was. But he was looking for the fountain of youth. In the 1600s, the Indians thought they'd pay a pay a, a prank on him. So they're like, oh yeah, there's a fountain of youth down there. Just go, go find it. And then the word got out and all the Indians just, just kind of sent him, sent him to keep, keep looking everywhere he went. But uh, apparently he never, never found it. But, but youth has been something that's the, the universal of obsession of mankind since we started living into old age. And uh, you know, when you're young, you don't realize this, and some of you are young, and, and uh, you know, you think of, youth, of old age as something that happens to other people. I mean, I, I remember when someone said, oh, don't worry about losing your hair. By the time it becomes an issue for you, they'll have a cure for it. So I'm still waiting for that cure. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, but when you're young, you feel like old age is something that happens, happens to other people. It's not something that, that's going to apply to me and so so what do all young people do we squander our our uh, our youth our opportunities and our abilities we make all these bad choices and and finally one day we we wake up and we realize we can't touch our toes we, you know we can't pick up a box and uh, you know we can't can't comfortably get up once we sit down because because things are changing and but what the bible says is that's not the way it's supposed to be. The reason we don't like getting old is because we're not supposed to get old. It's just something that's happened in this broken world that we live in. And the promise and hope of the scriptures, one day our youth will be renewed like the eagles and we'll have new lives and we'll have new bodies and everything will be made new. I mean, imagine being youthful but not being stupid. Wouldn't that be be a change, a different kind of experience. Uh, some of you can't imagine that, but, <laughs> but, but that's the promise of the scripture, because in the renewal of all things, it starts with the renewal of our lives, the renewal of our bodies. Because when Jesus came, he came and paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins, and then he went down 
into the pit, but then his life was redeemed out of the pit. And the promise is that everybody who believes in him, everybody who trusts in him, our lives will ultimately be redeemed from the pit as well. And we'll join him with new life. And the renewal of all things will have it as, as its center uh, the renewal of all humanity. And all, all of us will be made new as well. And this happened because the immortal Son of God, the eternal Son of God, on the first Christmas, he entered into humanity in the fullness of time. He came and was born to Mary, born of a woman, born under the law, and he completely fulfilled the law, and then, and then suffered under the law for us. The Bible promises that he's going to come back in victory and, and enjoy a complete victory over sin, over death, and over despair, and that's the hope that's available to all of us, regardless of how sin, regardless of how death, regardless of how despair has ruined our current life and ruined our current plans and ruined our current hopes. There is a hope beyond all of that for those who believe in him. Hope for those of us who are in old age is that we will be renewed. Our youth will be renewed like the eagles. Hope for those of us who find ourselves in the pit today is that our life will be redeemed out of the pit. Hope for sinners, even in the midst of our bankruptcy, all of our debts will be discharged and we will be able to stand before him. And that's the promise that Jesus came to offer all of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the success of Jesus. Thank you for the power of Jesus. Thank you that you redeemed his life from the pit so that when we find ourselves in the pits, we might have hope. Help us to embrace that. Help us to experience that. Help us to be changed by it, we pray. In his holy name, amen.